Today, we're talking about the dark forces in the manosphere on YouTube and what parents should be looking out for. We're also talking about something like the Hunger Games of Parenting. It's a show on TV that we kind of want to delve in a little bit too because it has some dubious practices when it comes to judging which parents are good and which ones aren't. All today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the headlines and the stories that aren't being covered, looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a network of education activists fighting for every child to have an opportunity to learn. And with me is Ravi Gupta, my co-host, a former Obama staffer and a former charter school superintendent in the South. So let's jump right in. I I love this. We're going to talk about this article in the New York Times about how there's this school or set of schools in the UK that are combating what they call in the Times article, brainwashing a generation. Chris, you've written about this general phenomenon. You want to tee this up for us? Yeah. So not too long ago, I wrote a piece that was basically said, we can't afford another generation of lost boys. And it was talking about the manosphere problem that we have. And for those listening, the manosphere is a portion of social media where dejected, alienated male young people go to kind of lick their wounds and they encounter a bunch of kind of like anti-women, misogynistic, incel-like. <laughs> and you know what? We've been using this word incel and I just recently figured out what it meant. Incel as a phenomenon of young male youth or young male people in the United States, incel uh, describes people who are involuntarily celibate. People who are not people who are not Catholic priests, essentially. Well, I don't know that they're celibate, for real. Um, <laughs> Good point. But uh, Good point. I think we have data that proves otherwise. But it's a subculture. It created a subculture of people who have a language and a way of seeing the world, and they have heroes. And some of their heroes are people that feed their instinct to blame women for their problems. There are all these reports that are coming out now that say men under 30 are having less sex than they've ever had in their life before, like in history. Fewer of them are actually uh, dating than ever before. There was a story that came out a couple of days ago that way more men than women are single, which I don't know how that works out when there's roughly 50-50%, but maybe some math major is going to help me understand this. But the percentage of males that are single and not able to find a mate versus the number of women that are actively with someone and happy is off. So this whole thing is askew. Uh, the supposed explanation for that is that women are in same-sex relationships and that they're dating older men. So the combination of same-sex relationships and, and dating older men is a trend that's more high among women. So that explains that math. Yeah, there are other things here, and I think you cite some of these things in, in your article, which is fewer males going to college, more males being suspended, disciplined, obviously the incarceration rate for men is 14 times that of women. You know, obviously, like, caveat it all to say the patriarchy exists. There is, there's been historic discrimination against women, to put it like lightly. And I think like the challenge in talking about this issue is to say, yes, there is some kind of crisis going on with men. And that, and, and talking about that in a way that doesn't in any way detract for the struggle for equality that we're in the midst of with women. And sometimes I think those things could get commingled, right? Well, especially by the incels. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the reason for all my problems is that women have made advances or gains. And, you know, chief among, when I say that there are 
This is why this is important. When I say that there are people who have risen up as celebrities of this subculture, it's important for parents listening right now to know that it, there's a very good chance that if you are not watching your child's social media diet and they are male, they've come across Andrew Tate in in way more hours than you think that they have. And he has fed them a line of pop cultural, new masculine ways of thinking that are actually somewhat problematic. Not even somewhat. Andrew Tate's influence, as well as that of other problematic social media influencers, has a significant impact on young boys and how they view gender roles and relationships. These are really harmful views, and it can contribute to a culture that perpetuates sexism, misogyny, violence against women. And uh, they take pride in almost like celebrating how blatantly misogynistic their ideologies are, and they create a really toxic self-perception in many of your your boys. So Yeah, and he's a former kickboxer turned YouTube star who has a lot of money and he flashes his wealth and says, like, this is how you become wealthy, and he pushes ideas, which we'll get to those ideas. But I think one of the reasons why we're alarmed to this, this New York Times article profiles a bunch of educators and students and finds that in schools in the UK, there are tons of young men trafficking in these ideas. And I want to, at this point, let me make a disclaimer that we're both going to talk about the ideas that he has. And and in a second, we're going to start playing some clips from him. And no way are we endorsing these ideas. We're we're exposing them and talking about them because they're getting your kids. So I just want to make that clear from the outset. But this article has one anecdote after another of kids trafficking in these ideas in the classroom. And it's almost like this YouTube generation, it's like ideas are spreading among kids in ways that I don't think were possible when we were young. Like, it's not like we were all like, oh, I'm reading this book and we're all talking about it. Like, it feels like these ideas are spreading like ra- like wildfire. And I could see why educators and parents are extremely uneasy about this. Yeah. And they oftentimes, I think, are lagging in in how often they can see it. So it's happening faster than you can tell. So I think that's really important. I think it's like super important for parents to be on the watch. And, you know, I I think for some, there's this, before we even dive in very much, we have to say, there are going to be people who are going to be like, you know, there were always things like this. Or, you know, boys being boys. But some of this skirts the line. Andrew Tate's not a boy just being a boy. Yes, he does the hyper-masculine. He's physical. He does fitness. He's rich. He has fast cars. He's into big motorcycles. He's into an unapologetically like alpha male uh, masculinity thing. So, okay, cool. There's been that for a, for a long period of time. But he's also a guy who right now is sitting in a, Roma- a Romanian jail for sex trafficking and rape. And this is where we have to like start learning, uh, learning to stop blurring the lines between celebrity and boys will be boys and things as they always were, in and start calling out as a society things that are going into sociopathy, like sociopological like problems. Like Kanye West is a good example. We won't get into that now, but he's a good example of. It took us a long time for his celebrity to catch up with the fact that he's a deeply troubled individual, right? And we kept celebrating him, oh, as some sort of free speech giant. Just like we're, you know, Andrew Tate, we could celebrate him as being just a plain spoken fitness guy of some sort or whatnot. I don't think we're good enough at catching up when they're sociopaths. I don't think we know that. I'm going to play you some clips, Chris, of Andrew Tate and for our audience. And I want us to discuss these through the lens of our children. That's what I want to do here. Let's start with the first clip, Tommy. 
I don't think the world has ever been equal. I'm not saying that women should completely and utterly be slaves. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the modern society we live in has been built by men. All the roads you see, all the buildings you see, everything around you, men built. All of it. When women come along and say, oh, we're, we're just as important. You are just as important, but you do had a completely different role. You fulfilled a different role in society. And I think now, if you look at the roles of society, I believe men are still doing their job, but I don't know if women are doing their job. Women's job always was procreation, to look after the family and to look after the man. That's all that they had to do. And the man would go out there and risk his life and spend his time building the modern world. Men are still out here building the modern world. But when they come home now, the girl's like, oh, why should I cook for you? I think, I think women are failing in their role. I think women are failing. So Chris, this is particularly dangerous stuff for our kids to be listening to and bringing into school. It's worth pointing out that he is a mixed race guy talking about what has been built by who. I think this is a dangerous line of argument about like who did what back in the day, right? Like a similar argument could be deployed against him by white supremacists, I can imagine. Chris, what do we do when our kids are listening to stuff like this? Like what's the message? First of all, dialogue is everything. Like a constant dialogue from the time that your child can talk until the time that they leave for college, like you're in constant dialogue with them. Like it's an ongoing conversation. So the one thing that you can't do is the thing that people have always tried to do, which is prevent, like block, like thou yeah. shalt not watch. Andrew yeah, it makes Tate. it sexier for the kids. Makes yeah. it sexier. Like what's yeah. the first thing they're going to do is they're going to, but it is to say, let's have a conversation about it. Let's talk about it. Now you tell me based upon our family values, what's wrong with that? clip and what do you what would you think i think is wrong with that and let's talk about it so you start talking about values that the the problem with something like his work which i think is is the overton window in action which means some of these things would have been outrageous to say just a few years ago and with the whole kind of social media free speech juggernaut the thing that we do now is we celebrate people who say the most outrageous things because it just shows how brave they are. Like, of course, women are trash. Of course, women have never built anything. Well, you couldn't have said that like five years ago or 10 years ago and not have been considered a real problem. And I think that really, that starts with listeners. You can beat me up on this if you want to, but that starts with Trump coming down an elevator and saying Mexicans are rapists as the beginning of a presidential campaign. It's something you've never seen before, you've never heard before, and it's instantly seen as brave and audacious and macho and you know everything that you want it to be. And from there, you have to keep delivering on that particular vice in American debate. You have to keep saying stupid things. You have to keep saying the dumber and the dumber things, and the people get dumber and dumber also. That's the real problem. So don't let your children be dumb. Sit your children down and say, let's have a conversation about this. Um, my uncle once told me, like, listen, you don't have to be the smartest person in the world. Just don't be dumb. Uh, <laughs> and and <laughs> I thought that was pretty good advice. It was pretty practical. It was a low That's bar. Funny. I that just want to say it was a low yeah, bar. Yeah, I was saying he was rounding down already. Shame on him. <laughs> he was. He was like, he, it was an old black man type voice, too. It was like, boy, I'm not telling you. You got to be sm uh, like a genius. I'm just telling you, don't be dumb. Right? It was, it was, and, and, that's pretty good advice. Well, Chris, congratulations. You have exceeded his expectations. Congratulations. I, well, I hope uh, so. All right. Well, let me play one more clip of Tate. because I, I. And once again, audience, the reason why I'm doing this is because you have to know. Like, I really do believe you have to be aware of these ideas that are out there. Second clip. You also said that you could have multiple partners, but a female that was with you couldn't also have multiple partners. Well, a woman could say that same thing if she decided. She could say, "I can sleep with multiple men, but my men can't sleep with multiple women." If she so choose, we're all free individuals, right? Yeah, but you don't. You wouldn't agree if a woman said that. I would personally find that revolting. Correct, revolting. but there are women who find what I say revolting. So you're not telling other people what to think. You're just saying how you think. I think if a man is uh, 
sexual is not sexually exclusive. It's not the same as if a woman is because with a woman, you have the paternity issue with a man. You don't have a paternity issue. If I have three girlfriends and, and they all get pregnant, we know who the mother and who the father is. If you have one woman and three men, you don't know who even the parents are if she got pregnant. Yeah, you could definitely figure that out. DNA tests are pretty accessible. <laughs> of course, yeah. That's exactly it. So I said science can step in and fix it, but that doesn't mean it's not haram and against the will of God. Look, read the Bible. Every single man had multiple wives. Not a single woman had multiple husbands. It's against the will of God. It's disgusting. In the eyes of God himself. And this is on a Barstool Sports podcast, so it's funny like to see the gradations of this and there was another later on in the same interview, he makes a claim that like all the highest people with the highest IQ are men. And then they fact checked him in real time. Number one IQ in the world is a woman. Look up the highest IQs in the world. The first 10, first 20. Look them up. Are they men or women? I haven't done this. Look it up. Did highest IQ in the world. Literally what comes up. Marilyn Von Savant has one of the world's cool. highest IQs. She is cool. known as the smartest person in the world. Cool. Then, then, all right, cool. Then I'm, then I'm totally wrong. So look, like we don't, obviously we don't need to debunk the theory that he has and talk about why it's wrong. But I do think like, and there's a continuum of different types of ideas. I mean, he, I would say is on an extreme end. And then in the United States, we have Jordan Peterson in Canada. We have Jordan Peterson, but he's really popular here. He's now on Daily Wire podcast. Now, I don't want to say like I, Ricky, one of my co-hosts has written about Peterson a lot. And I want to be clear that Peterson's ideas are not the same as Andrew Tate's. They're absolutely the same as Andrew Tate's. It's like beers. It's like they're in exactly the same class of beer, but people drink Lowenbrow and they think that it's high life and it's really not. They actually think that it's like a, a high class beer. Peterson has recycled this stuff and sold it to a more educated audience as something different or new. And he is literally saying the exact same things that this guy is saying, literally the same things. And that's the danger that we're in right now is Andrew Tate's easy to mock. He's easy. He's a kickboxer who says these kind of brash things. They're the exact same things that Jordan Peterson and others, Jack Donovan, even this being normalized on barstool sports, this kind of frat boy normal, normalization has a range. And when you get to Peterson, that's supposed to be the more philosophical range of the exact same idea. There's nothing in these clips that this guy just said that isn't in Peterson's work. I don't want to go down the Peterson rabbit hole, but I couldn't see Peterson saying a lot of those things. I think he's different, not good, but different uh, is my theory on him. But but my, my wider point you and I agree on, which is in the absence of us having a conversation about what's happening with boys and young men and, and having a plan for them, they will get sucked into content like this. And mm -hmm. it's the cousin mm -hmm. of, and we've done many segments on The Lost Debate about things like suicide rates and depression among young women. With these young men though, this is troubling. And I think like the key is, and there was a really good conversation between Dak Shepard on the Armchair Expert podcast and Scott Galloway, where they basically talk about this very question where they're like, all right, we've got to create a counterweight to this kind of like Peterson and Andrew Tate world. And we've got to like have a plan for these kids. And I wouldn't say I have it yet, Chris, but you start to get into it in your piece. Like, what's your high level? Like, what, as a parent and, and as somebody who talks to a lot of educators, like, what do we need to be doing beyond having those conversations that you're talking about? Is there anything structural, curricular? Like, are there, are there competing ideas? Like, you talked about family values. Are there thinkers out there that you're like, all right, this is a good person I'd want my, 
my kid or my students interacting with as an intellectual counterweight to some of these people? For sure, the the dialogue part that I said earlier is the start of everything because it gives you the avenue to be able to help children rationalize and intellectualize and arm them with intellectual defenses so that they can think critically about what they consume and they can easily identify what's toxic and what's not. Uh, I think they have problems as boys doing that, and we can help with that. I also think that there's a really big role for schools. SEL, social-emotional learning, which is a scientific discipline, which isn't the thing that is, is is being criticized in the public right now, is a very important education-based intervention to help young people learn to self-regulate, to deal with their emotions, to cope in a world, to handle stresses and stressors. Just like when you see young boys get recruited internationally into terrorist organizations, and it always targets the lost boys, it always targets the kids that are having some sort of alienation or trouble, that plays upon that. That same philosophy of arming your kids against those things needs to be deployed in this particular problem because the social media, the big tech social media algorithm is actually mincing boys up like chopped suey. It's like crazy how we are just leaving them to the algorithm. And what they are finding on their own is some of the most self-destructive, toxic lines of thinking that they can possibly find. So we need to teach them ahead of time. Number one, that exists. Let's teach you about the algorithm. Let's teach you about how this works. Let's teach you how this showed up in your feed. Let's teach you about why this is toxic and what it's meant to do to you and what some of the outcomes in life are for, for people. Turns out, by research, and anybody can test me on this. I'll find it for you if you make me. The traits that we think attract women to men, so the men that are coupling up with women, some of the traits are the ones that should just be like does and obvious. Women do appreciate kinder, thoughtful, generous men who display all the attributes of security and safety and generosity, positive traits, pro-social men. These are all antisocial gods that we're talking about. These, these guys appeal to your antisocial behavior. Of course, you're going to be alone. Of course, if you show up at school the next week talking the way that Andrew Tate has talked, thinking you're going to get a Lamborghini and a hot girlfriend out of it, <laughs> you're going to be alone. You're going to be alone. And I think, you know, we need to help kids understand the technical parts of how all this works. Like, where's this message coming from? Why is it being directed at you? Why specifically your age group? How do, how do algorithms work? That's all stuff to demystify for kids. I do think schools should play a huge part in this and role. And this is why it's important for this podcast. We talk a lot about education. Education isn't just math and reading and science. It's also the social and the pro-social things that you learn through your education, like your experience that sets you up for a good life. And social emotional learning is under attack nationally. I actually just would like to make a pitch for people to understand what it actually is, not what you're being told it is. Well, this is a good segue to talk about parenting in general. Like, What do parents do in situations like this? Well, what do parents do generally? There's this new reality TV show on ABC called The Parent Test. I'm going to from an Atlantic description of this. It promises to throw confused parents a lifeline and identify today's most effective parenting style. The show is hosted by Adolph Brown, a clinical psychologist, motivational speaker, and father of eight, and the actor, Allie Wentworth, mother of two. It follows 12 families, each embodying a different style of parenting and assesses each style for its likelihood of producing eventual adults who are emotionally whole and able to have healthy relationships and navigate today's world. Each family is filmed doing a series of parenting challenges, and the rest of the parents analyze the footage, voting one style out 
after every round. In the finale, the families choose one parenting style to rule them all. Parenting. Everyone's got an opinion, but which way is the right way? We're helicopter parents. We have a new age approach. Our strategy is intensive parenting style. We're putting each parenting technique to the test. For listeners, when we talk about parenting styles, they're talking about intensive parenting, high achievement parenting, disciplined parenting, free range, natural, helicopter parenting, child-led parenting, routine, negotiation, traditional, strict, or new age. Which one, Ravi, if you had to say like, I've got $10,000 to bet on these horses out of the gate, what are you putting your money on in terms of these styles, these parenting styles? I don't know what all of them mean. But just based on the name and my awareness of it, free range is very high on my list, but I would have a weird mixture of disciplined and free range. I would be disciplined about certain things and then I'd be free range about other things. Maybe it's like my combination of my mom and dad, like that's kind of how they are. But I was raised by my mom. So that's why I'm, I do things like leave New York for months at a time to go surfing is because I have more of my mom's influence <laughs> on me than my dad's. And your mom is more the free range parenting? Oh my God. Yeah. Like never, I've never had a, I was raised by my mom. I've never, maybe this is why I haven't had a boss since I was like 22, but I've never had been, had been punished. I've never had a curfew, never been like reprimanded in any significant way in my entire life. So that's free range. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Man, l listen, I think one of the things that the article lays out is that this is an unfair contest because context is everything. These are, like, you could you can't really judge these parenting styles. A rich family that, that does free range versus, you know, a Latino family in inner city that does helicopter versus some child-led family in Berkeley, it's different context. And it's really hard to form a competition. The way the competition is laid out in the article, it says they give them these challenges. And then it's like something where families have to work together to solve some, some form of problem. Some of them are high impact and like really problematic. Like I'll give an example. Like, uh, would your kid answer the door if someone came to the door? We've all tried to teach our kids some version of stranger danger. But would your kid let in like somebody who said that they were uh, an electrician? or an official authority figure. So they let the, they let the, left the kids alone with stranger danger situations like this. And uh, some of the kids would let a strange person in. And, you know, psychologists objected to the very test period of doing this. But I'll give you an example based on your example, Ravi, that I thought was really interesting was when I came to your city, to New York City, I remember observing people. One of the things I was just there like a week or two ago was really interesting. I love this about New York, when you come out of your hotel in the oh morning. Oh my God, you love something in, about New York? This is so exciting. I did find, I thought about you when I was there last week, because I did find some things where, I, first of all, I love the morning in New York, watching people go. Oh, so beautiful. So, so little beautiful. families and nannies with the, with the kids or whatnot, seeing them walk. Like there's not a lot of walkable cities where you see whole families walking. And I stood outside my hotel and just saw whole groups of families. So cute. One of my lessons about New York, though, that I saw when I was there was the amount of independence that a lot of the kids have, like like young people getting at an early age, getting on subways by themselves is not something that would happen where I live. Like our kids are not going to have that level of independence. And we're, we're way more helicopter. That's actually the premise of the free range parenting book. The woman who wrote the pre free range parenting book started because she was criticized for letting her son ride the subway at an early age. Yeah. And you know, and this goes to like, there's this Netflix series about Japan where these kids, like these toddlers are allowed to go to the store by themselves or something. Have you seen this show? No, but I love it. I love the idea of it. One new offering on Netflix has jaws dropping. Old Enough is an unscripted series 
parents sending their two to five-year-old children to run errands, from grocery shopping to dropping off dry cleaning or squeezing fresh juice. Netflix calling Old Enough the most wholesome show you've ever seen. So in Japan, the thing is, they're much more safe societies. So very young people go to the store by themselves, like like kids, like babies, like <laughs> like little kids with a note on them go to stores and stuff. So I think about that sort of thing with this competition. Like when you think about how much independence do you want your kids to have early? How much can you allow them to have? Like, would you feel like a complete failed parent if they get hurt doing something that you should have? foreseen. And also like the helicopter thing, you know, you're an educator. Think about the advantage that a kid has when their parents know how to fill out a FAFSA form or when their parents know how to rate colleges or judge pathways. Half of your work's already done for you when you have a helicopter parent. Now, do you think that's a good thing? Like for that person, like, does that make you more successful? I kind of think it does. I lean helicopter on that sort of thing. I, even though it's not fancy to say, it's not good to say. I think helicopter parents are kind of, they're kind of treated like the Karens of parenting. Appropriately so, in my opinion. <laughs> you think so? Well, okay, this is dangerous territory for me. Dangerous territory for me as a childless person to be commenting on people's parenting. But I guess I, I, I so I say everything with the humility of not, not having parented, but only like my main experience being a school principal. And so I think of, I think of it through the eyes of my philosophy of kids with the responsibility that I was bestowed and as somebody who had a parent. Uh, who looked after me. And that's what everybody brings to the experience. So I want to be careful. I have, I, I don't want to be too judgmental. But you know what? You're a helicopter educator though. You're like a nanny state. You don't want them to have phones. I, I've evolved on this. You have. Tell me how you have evolved. This is why I said I'm a combination, if I were to be a parent, of discipline and free range. Because that's how I would run mm -hmm, a school. Mm -hmm. There's certain parts of my school day that I'd be very exacting about. And certain ages at which I would be more exacting than others. But then there are certain areas where I'd be extreme in the level of freedom and flexibility, both within a school and as a parent. And so I think it's complicated. But I think everybody has to answer this question for themselves. I, I, I think we speak about this philosophically less than governmental policy. Like I, I admire certain governors like Jared Polis in Colorado who have opened up the laws and passed like what are called free range parenting laws to get rid of these weird situations where parents are arrested for leaving their kid in the car when they go to Target or whatever, mm -hmm. which are things that we've mm -hmm. covered on Lost Debate, which are egregious. Because I think a free range parenting law allows for the helicopter parent. It just says that if you want to be more freewheeling, and you have a different philosophy, you're allowed to, but it doesn't preclude the helicopter parent from being the helicopter parent. Well, let me ask you another question. What do you think about laws that say that parents are liable for damage that their kids do in the world? Let's say you have a bad kid or a runaway kid who goes out there and does something. I don't think you should be liable for what you're... I think there's a different civil litigation. Like you're, does, if your kid goes out there and like spray paints somebody's house or something, like they can't really sue the kid. So they suing the family, I think that's more complicated. But I think criminal liability, absolutely not. Unless it's certain cases, like I think it happened in Michigan where the parent has the gun and doesn't keep the gun locked up in a way that they're legally required to do. And then the kid takes the gun and does, that's different to me because that involves the mm. parents' negligence, not the kids. This is the, the lawyer in Ravi coming out. This is the yeah. attorney. But what do you think? I, I don't think, I don't think it's right. Cause I, I know plenty of parents who've done, my mom is a great example. I did some horrible things. I was arrested when I was a kid and it had, it had nothing to do with my mom, even free parent. I am parenting shocked. Set. 
Um, yeah. I am <laughs> shocked. Oh my God, we're learning things on this podcast. Now, and it was it was a life changing experience. I'm truly taking this in a different direction, but I I wound up hitting a kid in a fight, and the kid had to go to the hospital. Now that kid could have died. Should mm. my mom have gotten yeah. like going to jail for the rest of her life if I did kill that kid? Absolutely not. That's crazy, right? So the answer is no to your question. I don't know. What do you think? I think for a lot of people. Like, you know, there's a societal thing when kids do bad things. The first thing that people think is they must have bad parents and it's on them and it's negligence on their part. How could you raise a kid that would do, you know, X? I think in some cases that's founded because I think there are some parents in this world that are really neglectful and they're allowing too much stuff to, to happen in their kid's life that's bad. And you just gave a great example of one that's not that way. But let's 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 move on to this next piece because I think it does relate in this one way. You're not a helicopter parent person. You're more of a hybrid parenting person, it sounds like. Um, but you are, even though you say you're you're evolving, you are a nanny state educator in that you don't believe that kids should have as much freedom as I think they should have in their educational environments. And that relates to our next topic in this one way. There is a little bit of right on right crime going on. That's the way that I am framing this new issue. School choice laws are passing across the country. I wrote about this this morning, and you would think that that would make conservatives very, very happy and that they would all be rejoicing in the streets together. And as it turns out, they don't all feel the same way about all the different parts of ESAs or or school choice. And ESA stands for Educational Savings Account, and that is one kind of school choice that is actually becoming more popular. And it involves like getting money directly to families to decide how they will spend it. It's been written up in the 74 this week that in Arizona and in some places, parents have taken this public money for schools and done things like gotten a kayak or gotten their kids into SeaWorld or done some really kind of, you know, questionable things. And Checker Finn has written about this. If you don't know who Checker Finn is, he's one of the most esteemed conservatives in the United States who has the longest view on education probably of any conservative alive. He's been at this for a very long time. And you would think that he would be like uh, uh, enthralled by ESA's passing. And he wrote a piece not long ago that was basically saying something very cautious about ESA's, saying he doesn't think that they're going to lead to high quality that he doesn't think that parents are the perfect arbiter of making decisions about how to choose an educational institution. And he doesn't think that ESAs as a vehicle is going to be the panacea that we think it is. Like, we're just going to give all these parents kind of choice and money, and somehow it's going to lead to educated children. And that was a really unique conservative voice, but enter the libertarians. Dong, we need kind of like a, <laughs> a fight sound. Enter the libertarian. Round one. Fight. Adam Peshek uh, from Stand Together, which is a more libertarian education uh, nonprofit, wrote a piece in his newsletter, Permissionless Education. So he wrote about ESA saying, bah humbug to what Checker Finn is talking about, man. Like that stuff is, that's nanny state stuff. That's charter school thinking. That's, we don't need no regulation. We don't need any of those things. We need to just give the parents the money and set them free. Uh, which I thought was a pretty good, that's a pretty good matchup. That's a fight. Libertarians versus conservatives. Fight. And actually, we should add, we talked last week about Darrell Bradford's piece, who's a centrist Democrat, and he sides with the libertarian in this fight. Yeah, and he's quoted in this article, uh, actually. So we're getting very meta here. I love this. I like people pushing each other to rethink their assumptions. And I think he is right that charter people are bringing a charter framework to this issue. I'm one of them. 
So I'm like, well-regulated, cautious. That's my instinct. He's right about our instinct on that. Now, he could have done a better job to explain why that's our instinct. Like, I think he does this thing where he's like, here's the vision of the careful, like, you know, moderate to liberal ed reformer, charter supporter. Doctrinaire. And, yeah, they're doctrinaire. doctrinaire. Uh, you know, focus on optimizing the existing existing system, limiting space for new approaches to be tried. So he basically like borderline caricatures it, but I think in some ways gets us right. Fine. But then when he explains himself, he omits any of the possible downsides to their type of view. <laughs> so he talks about, um, he talks about, he says, I support ESAs as a means to an end to provide as many students, parents, and educators with the tools, financial, regulatory, socially, to create new and unique learning environments that are responsive to their needs, not the needs of regulators or some vague idea of society. A great school for one kid may be a bit terrible for another and vice versa. One side is obsessively focused on optimizing, and then he goes to, and he goes to the, and he, yeah, this is the key part. One side is obsessively focused on optimizing the existing system and is fine with, and maybe even prefers limiting space for new approaches to be tried. The other side, my side, sees de-risked innovation as an oxymoron and believes that hyper-local experimentation is the way to drive progress. Now, so in one case, he's being like, here are the downsides of your approach, limiting spaces, right? Obsessively focused on this. But then when he talks about his side, he's like, we're de-risking innovation mm -hmm. or saying a de-risked innovation is an oxymoron. He's basically, he doesn't talk about the downsides of his approach. The obvious downsides of his approach are you deregulate to a certain extent and that could lead to decreases in quality. It could lead to wasted taxpayer money. It could lead to embezzlement. You know, I, we covered all this in the hospice industry. So it's something I'm very concerned about. So that's what I don't like. I would like a little bit more steel manning from Adam, but I do like his, his premise, which is you can't, maybe we don't want to take a charter approach to an issue that isn't charters. I think it's a good push. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I think it's a good intellectual push for us to engage with. I will say this much. It feels a little unfair for him to, uh, I don't think that Checker Finn is using charter thinking. I don't think Checker Finn is a conservative who's in love with regulation. I don't think that he is that reckless in his argument that he was making about it. So it does feel a little bit unfair to Checkers. I mean, if he's any, I, I don't know Checker, but I, I interviewed Rick, who is his co-writer co on this piece that we talked about the other week. Rick Hess, to me, is very not in love with regulation. And if Checker's anything like Rick, his, his co-author on that piece... He's like, would seem anathema to like excessive regulation is my understanding. But Checker is like, Checker is the OG, a conservative thought in education. He's, he's the last remaining kind of really stately person on this. You have to like be more fair with the arguments that he's, he's, and if he's saying this, he's not, a, he's of course not a person that's in love with regulation. Right. It's just not possible. So there would have been a different tactic to go with here and beating up on charter people. As private school choice advocates, I know you guys listen. This is the totally listeners know that this is the total inside baseball portion of things that we will talk about sometimes. Yeah. Here's a total inside baseball thing. You may think that all school choice and ed reformers are in the same camp and they're not. And they have these little clicks like Crips and Bloods. And you, it doesn't spill out. Oftentimes, but... I think of it as Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. Like, you know, if you know the Russian Revolution. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Fight. If I knew more about it, I would go with that. <laughs> so basically the background of this is the Bolsheviks were Lenin, Stalin, and the Mensheviks were like more moderate communists and socialists. And who would you say in, in Ed world, who are this charter people? 
charter people are the Menshevics. Yeah, they're the more moderate. Okay, they're the Menshevics. And then who are the private school choice people? The ESA voucher people are the Bolsheviks. Okay, they're Bolsheviks. And then um, who are the straight up system people, like the you know traditional public school district people? That's the monarchy that got deposed. That's monarchy. Yeah, it's Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas. Yeah. So that's what we got going on in Ed World. You have people who believe that the biggest change that we could make in public schools is doing it through the systems, through things like technical fixes, like accountability, testing, teacher evaluation, improving the systems, improving the way that schools are funded. You know, that's the monarchy from what you're saying of reformers. The charter people are the ones who think we should chart a new course. Literally, give us a charter, we'll run new schools, but they'll still be public. They'll be regulated. They'll have to follow all civil rights laws. They'll still have to, you know, answer to an authority. They just won't have to answer to a local education authority. So that's freedom to them. But these private school people are the real hippies uh, <laughs> here. And the the inside baseball is they have felt like they have been the most maligned or the least helped by the movement over time. And that's why they're so kind of like, this is their Woodstock moment. This is like, it's it's like everything that they hated about you guys before in terms of charter people and everybody else. This is their moment to be like, ha ha, we win. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And he, he, cl- he, he says he's a charter supporter, but like any good Bolshevik, he's like, I like what you guys did, but I just want to go further. Uh, I want to do more. <laughs> and I don't see a problem with that. I, I think my, my one my one qualm is like steel manning his argument a little bit better, but he does make a point that I've heard you make before which there is a bit of frustration with the lack of innovation that's come from the charter sector. And that I think Mm -hmm. is right. Like we haven't unleashed like radically new school models enough through the charter school world. I think we've gotten better recently at this. And one thing I want to do is, you know, (laughs) you you confuse me because what, like, remember when I was wrote this high school thing, you're like, Oh, there are all these great, like innovative schools that exist that do that thing. Uh, and, and you weren't necessarily talking about charters, but we did. I mean, there were some charters like Summit that I think were implicit in that. Maybe DSST. I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Yeah. And there, you know, if you think about the XQ schools, and this is for, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking. Inside baseball, explain what the XQ is. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're thinking like, where are these schools coming from or whatever. XQ is a national effort to rethink high school and to change the way that we do high school radically from the top to bottom. So they have schools that are like environmental schools on a river barge or, you know, uh, a school that takes place a hundred percent outside or something. Purdue Polytech in Indy. And just as background, it was it comes out of the Emerson Collective or Emerson Institute that Steve Jobs' widow, Lorene Powell Jobs, founded, and she's the one who funded it. And I think they were, at, at the beginning, they were giving out $10 million grants. I don't remember what they are doing now. But they've done some hit or miss. But, but they're all very wild different schools. So to say that charters aren't, like, charters range from classical Charters that do traditional Western philosophy run governed schools, very traditional model, to really wild eyed, wildflower kind of Montessori or or schools without walls, schools outside, nature wilderness schools, that whole thing. So they have unleashed a lot of like that Adam's not giving credit, charters actually have unleashed a lot of different types. They just haven't put the money directly into the pocket of parents and said, hey, here's your ticket to go. Let's list some of the things that the 74 wrote that they do. A small robot that teaches coding is something you could buy. A kit to build a simple scooter is something you could buy with your public school money. Horseback riding lessons, ice skating and sword casting classes, board games, puzzles, and Legos. You know, 
this is the thing where we haven't unleashed the ability for kids to buy chicken coops just as a science curriculum, justified as a science curriculum, trampolines justified as physical education. No, we haven't done I, that part yet. Can I read though a counterpoint <laughs> on this? I, I've gone back and forth on this. And um, there's a, a friend of mine, Mike Goldstein, you might know him. He, he started match charter schools in in uh, Boston, which incidentally, back to our other point, was one of the few really innovative charter schools back in the day. They had live-in tutors that lived above the school, like young kids out of college. It was beautiful. I don't know if they still do that, but it was wonderful. And then he went on to Bridge International Academies. But he's he's a cool guy, really smart. He wrote a piece for the Fordham Institute that I want to read you his contrarian take. He says, this is my contrarian take on the kayaks and all this kind of stuff. He says, number one, all these scary examples seem good to me. The number one enemy of K-12 is boredom. Number two, public school teachers are already and appropriately doing all these things. More on that below. It's not just parents. Three, public schools are hit and miss in what they'll approve, so many teachers have to privately fundraise for their individual pet projects, but they shouldn't. The stuff that one teacher wants to do is precisely what will make it a unique experience for the kids. And number four, this is his final point, my proposal. Rather than hem in the ESA program, we should create teacher mega ESAs. Now I'll repeat that. Teacher mega ESAs for precisely this type of individual teacher spending. A few such teacher choice programs already exist, but they are small. A Boston Elementary School teacher has 20 kids at $25,000 per student. A government funding, why is her discretionary share of that $500,000 just a few bucks? Why couldn't she control $10,000 per year, 2% to spend directly on her students? Why does a school administrator get to control? All 100% interesting point, really interesting point. You know what my problem is, Ravi? This is the problem with me is I'm actually in Adam's camp the most, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. And there's nothing that he wrote in this piece in Permissionless Education that um, I haven't supported before yep. and haven't thought about. The pandemic broke my brain and my politics on some of this when I saw just how insufficient the market response was. Yeah, When I saw the people that I, I love and care about the most have nothing for the American public when the lights went out and the only thing that was for there for the public was the thing that we've all been criticizing the most, which is the mainline system. When I saw hundreds of millions of dollars over 25 to 30 to 50 years amount to nothing when we had the version of a national Katrina that we always said if it ever came, we would just explode with innovation. My brain broke because I had three kids and I was waiting for anybody to show up with any form of solution, whether that be virtual, whether that be, you know, new or innovative, a solution, like Mm -hmm. smartest guy in the room type thing. I wanted smartest guys in the room to show up. And what the smartest guys in the room told me, this is what I got for you. I have more criticism of the main system that everybody's waiting to go back online. Because when it goes back online, everybody's going to go back to it. And that gave me a renewed sense of two things that make me really a bad libertarian right now. This is what makes me a bad libertarian. Two things. The first one, it gave gave me an appreciation for a public option. For the fact for us to have a a public option when all all other things fail. And it also gave me a healthy suspicion for the happy talk and the utopian talk of libertarian ed- education reformers of let's just let our freak flag fly and give everybody money and just let's just, you know, free for all and it'll just all work out. It'll be high quality. Uh, Just the fact that you have a choice means quality will come from that or good outcomes. And really underneath that is this thing that the libertarians don't tell you much about is actually we don't really care if the outcome is good. 
Like some, I don't know if that's people, his view, though. Like he seems. I, mean, I don't know. Him. I, yeah, I know. But, I know libertarians well enough to know exactly what I'm saying is true. There is this sense that there's a Darwinian sense of it's gonna. It's the right thing to do. And libertarians are very principled people, so they do think about what's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do, so even if it has negative consequences, it was still the right thing to do. And that's the very principled stand. I think some people would would excel. The robot, the kid who gets the robot training and some wilderness escape or whatever might do fantastic, and many others won't. Yeah. Right. Uh, here's here's what I would, and I'm going to send this. I don't know Adam, but I'm going to find his email address and send the segment to him afterwards. And what I would love for Adam to do, and maybe he can come on, we could ask him about it, or he can write a follow up post if he's so inclined. I would love for him to engage with that point, right? I would love for him to engage with the point to be like, all right, tell us, is it a sort of um, deontological point to use a big word? Like, is it? Are you just saying that, that is this a very is a big word? This is meaning like, is it right <laughs> in and of itself, not because of the consequences of the opinion? Like, meaning like, do you just believe in the freedom itself, or do you think that, and or do you think the freedom? leads to an environment that is better for kids. And that latter point I'd want him to expand upon to be like, all right, this is why I think loosening up this regulation would actually lead to better schools, not worse schools. Why I think the regulation is bad. And I bet he's written a lot about this before, but I'd love him to piece for it together for those of us who are just coming to him to extend the point he, he makes, uh, he starts to make in this piece. Cause I would love to he's know. Got a, he's got an open invitation to come on. And I feel like, you know, like I said, out of everybody in this particular debate, I'm the most friendly to his his side. I'm the most sympathetic yeah. to his argument. I feel like I've made his exact argument. And if I were to be critical at all of what he's writing, it's not about him. It's a, to be it's to be self critical yeah. of the things that I've supported because everything in this piece I have written already. I would have written yep. it. And so, if I was still in my pre pandemic way of thinking, I would have read this and been like, you know, this is me. I kind of yep. saw myself in this thinking. I do think I was one of the libertarians who really do believe if you give people freedoms, it does lead to good outcomes. And I was never able to square how you prove, though, like in reform world, we care about whether there's a, a good chance of quality coming out of your proposal. Like, is yep. this going to be high quality? Are kids going to learn to read? Are they going yep. to be numerate and literate? Are they going to pass tests? Are they going to go to college? Are they going to get out yep. of college and get good jobs? And things that we don't think have a good chance of doing that, we usually poo-poo proposals that we don't think have a good chance to do that. And as a libertarian, that has always been hard for me to be able to say, I really believe, though, especially marginalized communities, giving them access to schools they've never went to before, giving them vouchers and giving them money, of course, has to lead to better quality than what they're getting, yeah, right? Totally. I literally believe that. I don't think everybody around me always believed that. They just believed it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and I and this is what Darrell Bradford sent me uh, after the piece, which is we were, he, we were just kind of commenting on the federalism point I made on ESAs. And we both kind of agree that it that we both really want to utilize federalism to our advantage. Like, look, we've got this federalist system. Let's use it. And so I'm I'm like acutely focused on what these experiments are gonna gonna yield for us. Too mm -hmm. much regulation, mm -hmm. too little regulation, et cetera. Chris, is that a good place to end here? I think it's a very good place to end to my friends and family and listeners, everybody listening and watching. Please help support the show. And there's a couple ways that you can do that. 
One way that you can help support the show is just to provide us with feedback. And we've been getting really great feedback from you guys. The last batch of feedback that we got, I could actually round it out by saying uh, we had multiple people tell us that they don't agree with everything that, that we say, but at least we make them think differently about some of the issues. And there were you know, some people that give us feedback that they're still wrestling with some of the issues that we talk about because of their local specific areas. So that's one thing to always remember. If you live in Arizona, it's a little bit different than if you live in California or somewhere else. So we talk in generalities sometimes, and there might be one of you who says, I live in Texas, and it's a little bit different, even though I see your point about charter schools in Texas, it's different than it is like somebody who would be, you know, giving us feedback from New Orleans or from Minnesota, for instance. So one way is to give us that feedback through our voicemail, and you can leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171. Another way to get us that feedback is to send us an email, and you can send that to Show at lostdebate.com. As you can tell by the domain name, we are a proud member of the Lost Debate Network, and we think that you should not just listen to this show, but you should go to lostdebate.com and look at some of the other really cool shows I had a chance to listen to Ravi's The Regressives show that he did with Rick Hess, and I found it very interesting. I mentioned you. I name-dropped you. You did name I appreciated that. And then I wrote about it in my last newsletter that came out today, uh, just to highlight that show, and it's a conversation that should go on. That particular show, I would point you to go and check it out. It's the last one. And it's about whether or not reform has atomized to the point where there's not a coalition anymore, a bipartisan or tripartisan coalition that still can work together. And I found Rick points interesting that I haven't heard anywhere else, to be very honest with you. I don't always pay attention. So that's the good thing about the Lost Debate Network. It brings together people that wouldn't normally be talking to each other or talk past each other on social media, and it gets them all in the same place. And I love that. So go check out those shows. Can I make one more plug, Chris? One other show I want to plug again is it's Sweat the Technique. It's this show from a bunch of former and current educators applying the lessons learned from schools to society as a whole. Our episode this past Wednesday, I interview the person who runs the most successful surf school in the entire world about like how he teaches people to be surfers really fast. I interview him on location in Costa Rica. It's a fun episode. And then we basically talk about how do you learn things late into life, which is a big passion of mine. Like how do you become good at something as an adult and at the, in my case, a rapidly approaching middle-aged adult if I'm not already there. So it's a cool listen. I just want people to know, I'm going to listen to this particular podcast. I want to always take the opportunity when Ravi gives me this type of opportunity to tell you my own background and my own studies have been in andragogy. And we talk a lot about pedagogy, which is for children. And what Ravi just talked about is andragogy, which is how do adults learn and how long do they keep learning and how do they take ownership for their learning. I'm very much a self-taught person and I have a system for teaching myself that I've used over years. So maybe in a future show, we will talk about Andrew Goji and bring up these type of examples. Because I think one of the things about this show and for listeners, I hope we are always trying to make the public smarter. And I hope that you as listeners are feeling like you get some value out of things that you didn't know and you didn't learn. We need as a society, more people committed to continuing to learn all that they can because the dumbing down of America is actually going to be very bad for us in the long run. Like we, we, we started this show talking about Andrew Tate. That's very clearly a regressive way for the country to start going and to start thinking. We need smart people to be smart people and to take over the country. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. We are always glad to have you. Thank you so much for listening to us and we will catch you next week. 